Exodus chapter 1. I think you'll see very quickly why this picks up on Jacob and Joseph. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And then Psalm 105, verse 23, we get a divine perspective on what is taking place in Egypt at this time. Psalm 105, verse 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Father, thank you for your word again today. Um, how we need the perspective, how we need divine truth. Spirit of God, speak in our hearts, I pray, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can tell as we read Exodus chapter 1 that there's an overlap between the start of Exodus and the last part of the book of Genesis. The overlap reminds us that we're not entering into anything brand new. Rather, what's going on is Moses is just continuing God's story of salvation. The first six words of Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 are exactly identical to the first six words of Genesis chapter 46 verse 8 and in fact those words grammatically in Hebrew begin with the word and now my teachers always told me in school you never start a sentence with and because that ain't good grammar but that's how we start Exodus chapter 1 and Genesis 46 8 with and and it reminds us that we are continuing the story and so if we were to pick up at chapter 50, verse 26 of Exodus, and we would read, And Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. The point being, again, is just this constant reminder, this desire that Moses has that if we, as we enter into Exodus, we are not reading a self-contained story, but rather this is an ongoing, continuing story, the way of God with his people. As we read the first stories, too, we're ahead of the pack when we come now. If you've been with us for the last four or five months, we're ahead of the pack when it says that um, Jacob came with his family to Egypt, but Joseph was already there. We just have this world of information that explodes in our heads because we know how Joseph got there. 
And we know what was going on. We know how his brothers sold him as a slave, but God sent him. We know how his brothers meant evil for him, but God meant it for good. We know that God had directed the steps of Joseph to rise up to be second in command of Egypt so that not only would he bring salvation to all of Egypt, not only would he bring salvation to the world, but he would bring salvation to the people of Jacob. And so we are ahead of the game by reading, and Joseph was already in Egypt. There's three things that I want to focus on. We realize that the family of Jacob has now been in Egypt for about 71 years. As I understand the numbers, they will not be delivered for at least about another another 144 years. And so Moses picks up the story now when the generation of Joseph and his brothers have died and gone away. Three points that I want to make, three simple points, which I probably have a tendency to make more complicated, but there are three simple points that I hope they embed in your head as we bring a conclusion to our time here in the life of Jacob and Joseph. The first is simply this, that silence does not mean inactivity. Silence does not mean inactivity. When we come to Exodus chapter 1, God does not talk. In fact, he doesn't talk until Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and following. He's silent. And in fact, he's been silent since the death of Joseph for a number of years, probably for 64 more years or so. He is silent. But during that time, he is active. We know that some of the Israelites were aware of God and feared God. We don't know how many, but we get a glimpse of that when we read about the Hebrew midwives who would not carry out genocide on their old people because they feared God. And we can deduce from the fact that Miriam would not kill her son Moses um, and found a way to work through um, uh, the king's command to kill all the babies by at least putting him in a basket and letting him float in the River Nile. So there was at least an active awareness on some of them that God was still over them. But right under our noses, we see evidence of God at work in a critical and a significant way, even against the backdrop of silence, even against the backdrop of the fact that Pharaoh does all the talking, and as the one who does all the talking, we might say, well, he's got all the power, when in fact we will realize that Pharaoh is simply a servant of God. And where do we see God at work? Verse 7. Verse 7 says very clearly, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You you get a sense that there's this population explosion that is happening amongst the people of God in, in Egypt. And this was God's doing. God was keeping his word. God was fulfilling his promise that he had made hundreds of years earlier to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. The people were experiencing the blessing of God. This is how um, uh, Stephen understood it when he's recounting the history of the people of Israel. He says, but as the time of the promise drew near, what promise? Well, the promise of God to Abraham to bless him and to multiply him and have a great nation come out of him. Stephen says, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiply. See, that word, but, at the beginning of verse 7 is so important, and it's significant because it tells us that there's there's something we ought to focus on, something we ought to think on. And here, the people of God are now in Egypt, and they are just bursting at the seams. 
When God first made the promise to Abraham, there was one of him. And then as God reaffirmed the, the, the promise to, to, to Jacob a couple generations later, there were 12 of him. And then we read in verse or chapter 47 how there were 70 of them. And Moses picks this up now in chapter 1, and he says, And 70 of the descendants came down to Egypt, and Moses or Jacob was already there. But now we're reading that there is this exceeding great host. Genesis 12, 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Genesis 13, 16 says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Genesis 15, 5, God speaks to Abraham again. He says, look towards the heaven and stump, number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Genesis 22, 17, he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And then to uh, Isaac, he says, God Almighty will bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. To Jacob, he says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. Do you see what's taking place here? Even though God is silent, he is actively at work bringing about the promise that he had made hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. He may be silent, but he's not inactive. And I think it's helpful for us sometimes to look at this in our own lives and to consider the, the way that our lives may be going. It, it may be true that sometimes we're just living on the fumes of promises. That God is, we don't feel that close connection, that sometimes there's a hiddenness of God. Uh, sometimes there's a distance that we feel from God. And sometimes in that distance, we might be tempted to think, well, God is inactive. Well, this situation just reminds us that the silence of God does not mean inactivity. That God does not need to speak to bring his promises to fulfillment. Don't assume, loved ones, that the silence of God in your life means that God is inactive in your life. Silence can be a strange providence. The second point is that suffering does not mean absence. Suffering does not mean the absence of God. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, we find out all of a sudden there's this new Pharaoh that has arisen in Egypt, and he's bothered by the people of God. He doesn't see them as a good any longer. He sees them as a threat. His brutal policy against them replaces the protection and the provision that the people of God had experienced while Joseph was second in command of Egypt. And his fear now drives them to be, in, he drives him to enslave them and to work them to exhaustion. And we might ask, well, what's this all about? How, how can God allow this to happen to his own people? And yet many in Exodus chapter 1 will point to the truth that, that as God's people, we're not immune from suffering. In fact, uh, we're told that you will experience tribulation. You will experience trials. You will have troubles in your life. That, that is the lot of living in this world, and it's certainly the lot of Christians. But there's something specific going on here which I think is instructive to us as we live in this world in which we do. And in fact, I think there's a, there's a point in Exodus chapter 1 which gives us a specific framework to look at aspects of our world with a unique way of understanding the secret providence of God. Explain it this way. We have referred to Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 a number of times throughout the series. In fact, when I started it, we 
talked about how Genesis 15, 13 was God fulfilling that promise through Jacob and Joseph. There God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They will be servants and slaves, and they will be afflicted. You see what God was telling Abraham? He's telling them what the next 400 years will look like. There will be a pilgrimage. They, his people, his, his descendants will be sojourners, that they will be oppressed, and they will be enslaved, and they will be afflicted. And we say, well, How? Well, God will raise up a new king who will enslave and embitter the people and mistreat them. One commentator writes, There is a secret providence always at work, his secret and ceaseless care. These are difficult, strained words because the people who face such difficult days are the people of God, his chosen people, to whom have been the recipients of covenant promises. How can they suffer like this? We have a lot of questions around suffering, don't we? Any anytime we experience it, we have just a world of questions that run through our head. We don't have a lot of answers here, but one thing we know for certain is that it was God who raised up this new Pharaoh in order to afflict his people. Pharaoh thought the people of Israel were his slaves when actually he was God's slave. And he was carrying out the word that God had decreed hundreds of years earlier to Abraham. See, people in leadership think they're in control. Premiers, prime ministers, presidents. But they are actually servants of the living God. Carrying out his will and his purposes. We may not know what God is up to. But we can be sure that like Pharaoh, those in authority over us are God's servants, placed there by the will and purpose of God. And this new king was an instrument in God's hands for bringing about the departure of the people of Israel from Egypt. This text makes it clear that Pharaoh wants to crush God's people. But he's merely a servant of the living God carrying out the word of God. And God will bring his word to pass even through wicked servants. And even though they are unwilling and wicked. Loved ones, was this not the story of Revelation? We spent a number of months in the book of Revelation. And one of the comforts that we have from the book of Revelation is there is a throne and it's occupied. And that throne is like the control tower of the universe. And though Satan may rage, though the beast may rage, though the false prophet does his best, they are all doing it through derived authority that God gives them their power, that God sets the boundaries of their life, that all the rulers and the kings that are mentioned in Revelation are contained and controlled and guided by the hand and the purpose and the will of God. There is not a single person in authority that acts independent of the will and the purposes of God. We see this so many times worked out in Scripture. I, I want to encourage you to, just to read 
Um, Isaiah 37, if you have a chance this afternoon, I won't even talk about it other than to say it's an incredible example again of how Sennacherib was God's servant uh, to destroy many nations until he came up against the people of Israel. And you can read about the incredible way that God explains how Sennacherib was his servant in Isaiah 37. But the most significant illustration of this is found in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have the, uh, Peter and John recounting how the kings of the earth had set themselves, the rulers of the earth were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And we understand that story, how rulers of all different natures conspired to put Jesus to death. That was their whole goal and their whole purpose was to destroy the Son of Man. And yet how does Peter and John end that prayer? They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, the religious leaders, the mob amongst the people of Israel, we're all servants of the living God. Beloved, we need to know and we need to be confident that even as the psalmist described what happened in Pharaoh when he says that God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to, to hate his people and to deal craftily with them, we need to know that the God who created the heaven and the earth will faithfully bring his word to pass even through unwilling and wicked servants. As one commentator put it, Dale Ralph Davis, he says, we might need to be reminded today that the secret of God's faithfulness is that he will often use vicious, ungodly, and raging rulers of this earth who are nothing more than servants whom he uses to bring about his word. The last point. Salvation does not guarantee appreciation. I tried to figure out how to best say this. I, I just spent a lot of time working my head around this one. The first words of verse 8 of chapter 1 in Exodus are hard to imagine if you take them at face value, where it says, There arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And you say to yourself, how can this be? How is it possible that a new king could not know anything about one who had done so much for his country, so much for his kingdom, so much for the people of the earth, so much for the Israelites, that he could become an unknown quantity in around 65 years or so? Well, it's more than likely that we are meant to understand this phrase not as true ignorance, but as convenient ignorance. I think the NIV captures it. And this is why I think multiple translations sometimes can bring out nuances or things that are intended that others don't. The NIV says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. See, rather than raw ignorance, he just simply put Joseph out of his mind. 
This new king had no loyalties to the previous regimes. The functional implication of this, he did not know Joseph, is that he refused to honor any prior arrangements that were protecting the status of the Israelites. You see, at this time, there was a significant power shift that took place politically in Egypt. Historians will tell us about how the Hyskos people came in and just turned Egypt upside down. And this new king that came to power now refused to acknowledge any of the tremendous benefits that had come to Egypt and to himself through the leadership of Joseph. We see this all the time. Every time there's a shift in a government, we see it. We see it at the, uh, at the provincial level. We see it at the national level. We see it uh, in the states. We see it around the world that all of a sudden a, a, a new party will come to power and it's like the old party never existed. Everything they did, everything they said was stupid, undone, never talked about. Even though they did a lot of good, they just act as if it never happened. It's not that they didn't know who was the premier or the prime minister or the president before you, before them. They just choose not to acknowledge them. I think this is what is taking place here. This new king chose not to honor, but consciously ignored, undid, suppressed the truth about Joseph. He's looking at the people through a new lens now. He's fearful of them. They're increasing in number. Their numbers pose significant threat, but rather than expel them, he chose to exploit them. You see, you don't exploit and treat a people harshly and at the same time hold up all the good they have done. It's just a contradiction. Surely this new king was not ignorant of Joseph. He couldn't be. We're, we're not that long after Joseph had died. Surely he would have known about the state funeral that Jacob had received. I mean, this was incredible. All the leaders of Egypt went in this massive procession for months to take the body of Jacob to Canaan. Surely he would have known about Joseph and his leadership and the fact that Joseph didn't just die, he was embalmed. You don't just embalm a normal Joe or Jane. You embalm those who are royalty or those who are rich. And you don't just stick them in an unknown grave. You put them in a mausoleum or a, or a great structure that acknowledges who that person was. There's no way that he would not have known about Joseph. I suspect he just chose to suppress the memory of Joseph. We do this too. And we do it in the area that probably matters most. We do it with God. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. He says how to all mankind the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress means to hold down, to push down, to not let come up. We do that. We suppress the truth. And he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God's not hiding. God is not making it difficult for us to acknowledge him or know about him. He says, God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. You see, our hearts are so desperately wicked. That's what Jeremiah says of our hearts. By the hand of God, Joseph was sent to Egypt to save not only Jacob and his family, but to save Egypt and, in fact, the whole world. Joseph had spelt out his plan to Pharaoh. He said, we, we will store up food and it will be put in reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that shall occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. In another place, it says the famine is severe and moreover, all of the earth came to Egypt and to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Jacob said to his sons, go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. The Egyptians themselves said to Jacob, you or Joseph, you have saved our lives. This was no ordinary salvation. This was a worldwide preservation of human life. And this new king acted as though it never happened. We can be thick. We can choose to forget. We can suppress the truth of God. Gratitude and thankfulness can wane over time or for other reasons. Our hearts can spew out so many deceptions that we no longer credit God with anything. In fact, Peter talks about false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. See, salvation does not guarantee appreciation. And so as we leave off our time with Jacob and Joseph, remember that the silence of God does not mean his inactivity. Look closer in your life. Consider how God is working, even though you might not be able to hear him. He is still faithful in his silence. Remember that the suffering of God's people does not point to his absence. The servants of God come in both wicked and righteous clothing. Some are good, others are evil, and yet they are all servants of God carrying out the will of God. And then thirdly, salvation experience does not guarantee gratitude. How easily do we take our salvation for granted? We come to a Lord's table and what is one of the, what is the, the key imperative? Remember. It's so necessary that we come to the Lord's table with this in our hearts and minds today. Particularly in light of Pharaoh, who we read did not know Joseph. And before we rag on Pharaoh and say, why did Joseph mean nothing to him? Just examine yourself just a little bit. How much have you thought about Christ this week? How much have you thought about your salvation this past month? How much have you thought about salvation over this past year? You see, it's so easy for us to displace 
the work of God in our lives through Christ through a million and one reasons. To ignore our salvation, to lose sight of what Jesus, our Savior, has accomplished on the cross, to forget how he sustained us, to remember that he is, in fact, the Savior of the whole world. Some people forget because of history. Oh, it's 2,000 years ago. How can any human being who lived 2,000 years ago have any relevance to my life today? And you and I know how, how the world is just constantly suppressing the truth about the historical Jesus. Just pushing it down, squashing it down, throwing anything that will stick on the wall to try and bring people to conclude that Jesus was at best just another man if he ever existed. And then we who have been saved by him. Every time an idol rises to ascendancy in our own hearts, a new king comes to the throne of our hearts. And he displaces the truth that we know about Christ and our salvation. These idols, they're just vicious. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. They're just constantly spewing out new things to worship. And each one of these new idols pushes God a little bit more to the periphery, pushes Christ a little bit more out of sight, out of mind, takes a little bit more of attention, a little bit more of our focus, a little bit more of our time, and causes us to forget the one to whom we owe everything. We need Jesus, don't we? Salvation belongs to him and him alone. Loved ones, cultivate a memory of Christ. Every time something comes to suppress the truth of your salvation in Christ, and you push it aside, fight it. Fight it with gratitude. Fight it by going to scriptures. Fight it by recalling what Jesus has done for you and how he has saved you. May it never be said of us that we forgot about Jesus. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I owe everything to Him. Oh, as we gather around the Lord's table, peel away those things that have been fighting to hide Christ and let your Savior and your salvation explode afresh in your hearts and minds, filling you with gratitude and thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you instruct us through historical realities. Teach us about our own hearts and about our own ways. Father, some of these truths are difficult for us to grasp about how you work in our world. But help us to wrestle with them because the truth will set us free. The truth will squash fear and worry. The truth will fill us with adoration of our great God and King. Help us as we come to the table now, I pray in Jesus' name.